Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us on the line today for our series on women in the judiciary is Judge Hashila Kuverji from the Gauteng Division of the High Court in Pretoria. This show marks the last in our series on women in the judiciary, where High Court judges from the Eastern Cape, KwaZulu-Natal, Limpopo, and now Gauteng have shared their personal journeys and highlighted various aspects of the judiciary and South African legal system as we reflect on Women's Month. Whilst much has been done to advance gender equality, there is still much left to do. And bearing this in mind, I want to open today's show with a quote from Michelle Obama, former First Lady of the United States of America, who said, no country can ever truly flourish if it stifles the potential of its women and deprives itself of the contributions of half its citizens. With that said, welcome to the show, Judge Kuvaji. Good afternoon, yes, thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. Judge Kuvaji, besides all of the work that you do in the legal space, you have had a myriad of interests prior to your appointment to the bar. And some of these roles include Deputy Chair and Member of the Council for Medical Scheme, Member of the Financial Services Board Tribunal, a Member of the Appeal Board of the Financial Intelligence Centre, a Member of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators and Chair of the South African Revenue Service Tax Board. These are all incredibly important institutions which contribute to society and shape the respective disciplines that they govern. What motivated you to participate in these structures? Mm. Yes, I'll tell you now, I just want more importantly, uh, I was also a member of the Legal Practice Council and the Legal Practice Council is the regulatory body that regulates the entire legal profession. And that is where um, the whole issue about gender parity and women's, um, you know, that we, women lawyers are protected and have equal opportunities. And that's where most of my work, most of the work that I did concerning uh, just the socioeconomic and the upliftment of women academically was involved in that that segment. But coming back to your question, um, sitting on all of these boards wasn't something that I just lifted my hand and went and I got in. It was... Uh, I was actually handpicked to sit on the financial in the services industry boards, that's the appeal board, but on the Council for Medical Schemes, I applied and the minister obviously accepted my nomination. But ser serving on these boards, we must understand that they are all part of a government um, institutions. In other words, they are regulatory bodies. Uh, which are appointed either through the finance ministry or the health ministry or the uh, minister of correctional services insofar as the legal practice council is concerned. And these bodies are there to regulate and ensure that certain environments comply with the law and that, you know, in, in the greater uh, political, economic and social sphere of South Africa and that our citizens are protected. For example, the Financial Services Board, a simple thing like a broker will steal pensioners' money and they don't even know what would have happened to their money. So they have, they can come to the Financial Sector Conduct Authority and lay a complaint or the fires on it. 
and for example, the council for medical schemes. You have medical schemes that don't want to pay members benefits or you have those kind of disputes. So it's always dealing and servicing the public in every way. But the, what really influenced me to really serve on these boards is that we must remember that regulatory institutions are the checks and balances to make sure that government does its work properly and that citizens don't abuse their powers. So if you have strong regulatory bodies that are governing in different sectors, you can have a strong government system. And that is very important because that is where all this corruption starts. We know what had happened with the Zondo Commission of Inquiry and all of the stuff that came out of there, all the all the corruption scandals and all of the aspects that came out of there. So I felt that as I was going into this, it was it was not just it, it really interested me and I really wanted to do this work because on the one hand, I realized there was a need for strong leadership because I did a lot of leadership skills and negotiation, especially with that Harvard course. And then I also understood that um, when you're sitting in meetings and corporate governance uh, aspects, such as the Council for Medical Schemes, you need to understand the environment that you work in. And, and in order to do that, you have to be able to communicate, not to negotiate and how to speak and how to reach, um, you know, some kind of a roundtable meeting or something of the sort. So that is why I got myself involved in all of these um, institutions. And it also has given me a great um, footing in terms of leadership and also um, a knowledge and a great specter of different fields. It must have given you tremendous exposure into different fields and that notion of accountability, the checks and balances and ensuring that everything is regulated correctly. So coming back into the legal aspects of the conversation, since 2013, you've been called upon to serve as an acting judge, amassing experience and exposure to a variety of cases. Can you tell us about a few of the most significant cases or ones that you feel have had a big impact on you that have crossed your courtroom? Yeah, well, the one uh, matter which I think that uh, affects women and, well, just parents generally is the one that I represented um, a government institution in um, respect of um, uh, Rule 43 orders. Now we know that Rule 43 orders, these are all interim orders that you would get pending the outcome of a divorce matter. So it's an interim order. And, and if you're not happy with it, you cannot appeal against it. But there was an argument on the other side that they have no option and the rule is unconstitutional because parties don't cannot ask for relief otherwise. And the court then said, then extended the purview of the rule to say, no, it's not only in terms of one bite at the cherry. If you need to vary the order, you can go back to court and you can actually uh, ask for the court to vary the order, provided that you have a case. So for me, that was, that was a very huge impact for all parents. Because I think that in every marriage at some time, I mean, we know there's so many failed marriages and we know that you can't get divorced immediately or you can't get your papers done, um, you know, as fast enough. So in the meantime, there are children involved, there are maintenance issues, there's custody issues. 
So the, this is very important. And uh, for me, that was significant um, in that sense. And then another matter was um, the legal profession. It was a matter of proxy smart. I can't remember all the parties, but um, in that matter, there was an application made by an institution to say that uh, it dealt with conveyancing, that lawyers don't have the, um, the monopoly to, um, to uh, transfer properties. You know, the whole, the whole lodging, the, the, the deed with the, um, uh, with the master, et cetera, that all the other peripheral work can be, uh, uh, can be generalized work and can be done by ins- other institutions. And then the court looked at that and said that, firstly, it wasn't actually a hard ruling, but the court said that they did not make out a case on that basis because lawyers or at least um, conveyances are the ones that have been provided with this power to do the transfer of properties with the deeds registries mm-hmm. and nobody else can take it away because you can't have peripheral institutions or financial institutions trying to take away that work. The thing that has really struck me over this series is the fact that legislation can change, that it evolves on a continual basis. One of the things which really stood out for me, for example, was the the recognition of Muslim marriages, uh, changes to the maintenance claims, Amendments to the Criminal Law, Sexual Offences and Related Matters Amendment Act Bill. In your view, what do you consider to be other important recent changes or reforms to further gender equality? Um, you know, I haven't done much work research on this point. Um, I know there's all these changes um, on the maintenance claims, but I still feel that there's a lot of room that we actually have to develop, particularly in the criminal criminal field sector, especially with, with sexual violence matters, especially rape. You know, the women women don't have that support structure. They don't have the basis. Uh, I mean, we have a lot of these uh, NGOs and other institutions that try to support women, but really, they, we really need something very substantial. Somebody needs to know if I uh, get raped, this is exactly the what I need to follow, you know. And so they, apart from the labeling and uh, not being supported already, you feel like, um, did you do something wrong, you know? So for me, every time I see a rape case on appeal, um, I find that, you know, the, a woman hasn't been given that support or that, that basis to say, okay, I, I am a rape victim. Now let me start from here. It's, it's very difficult because she, goes, she has to start from the bottom. So she hasn't got any support. And I think that in that aspect, we really need to develop something, either change the act in some way or to give it a specific provision. Because for me, I think that's a very serious um, injustice to women. And especially young girls, you know, they are um, teenage rapes or, you know, young girls and children. Parents don't even know what to do when that happens, you know. So if, apart from the socioeconomic circumstances you find yourself in, the justice system must put something in place. You know, and, and I'm saying this not because I've worked in that field um, face-to-face in the regional courts or even in the magistrates' court or even in the high courts with this type of matters. But I see it from time to time whenever I see an appeal and I, and I feel that was the, the victim 
com- or the complainant given a fair chance in these matters. Mm. Like you say, there's victimization, there is trauma, there is having to relive this experience each time you go through the process. Today, we're talking to Judge Hashila Kuvaji from the Gauteng Division of the High Court. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Judge Kuvaji, we towards the end of August and every year South Africa celebrates Women's Month in August. And I find it's a period for reflection on the progress that we've made, but also in terms of future thinking of the direction and the route that we want to go into. This year's theme is Generation Equality, Realizing Women's Rights for an Equal Future. If you could please share with us in the short to to medium term, what types of interventions do you think could be applied to help further reduce the inequalities that women still experience today? That is such a hard question. You know, this is such a Uh, This topic about women and women's rights and women, I think, comes just from education. For me, if you educate, and, you know, more recently, it's surprising me that you actually mentioned uh, Michelle Obama's uh, little quote, but her husband, uh, the president, also stated that, you know, a nation cannot survive without a woman. A mother is is this you know is the essence of a nation, and until people don't um, understand, and until people are not educated and in respecting women and acknowledging what a woman means in society, we're not going to have that change. So for me, medium term or long term or short term is for me. I think it's education, because. You know, maybe uh, three decades ago or four decades ago, most women stayed at home. Um, and now with the three, two decades ago, everyone is working. Um, the problem that we have is that a woman is juggling her career and her family life, but no one has actually made room for that. For example, we should have institutions where mothers feel safe to leave their children so that they can go to work. We have a lot of single parents. And, you know, that is something that I think that government needs to step in. We have in other countries where they, you know, you have the support structures where they provide for in schools. If a a teacher has, if there's babies or whatever, they have creatures in in the institutions or the buildings or, you know, in corporate. I mean, for a woman in a corporate field or even in a private sector, even in the legal field, it's very hard because, you're supposed to research till the late hours of the morning, supposed to be ready and face your opponent in court where your opponent went home, his wife had given him a warm meal, he didn't have to worry about the children, and he comes with his dark suit looking all well and fine, and you still wonder, did you pack your child's cereal in the bag so that, the, you know, for the crutch, it's terrible. So I, I had to live like that, and, and I just think that we need, people to understand and make it easy for women. So medium or long-term or short-term until you don't understand the value of a woman and until you don't educate your nation. And that starts from schools, then you're never going to be able to achieve anything. And when we're talking education here, this isn't just a case of book smart education. This is about educating society about traditional gender stereotypical roles that have been perpetuated 
and actually need to change. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the kind of stuff. You know, I mean, we, we also know what we have with government. We have this, every time we see this, we have this charter for gender rights and put parliament's mandate to make sure that women are representatives and we have these objectives. Putting stuff on paper does not help. It's for decades. We started with a 1956 March for Women, when, you know, for the gender equality and equal access to justice and, you know, women being recognized. And you just, all you're having is a charter, but you go back home and the same story works. Until a child doesn't know, and, and until a man doesn't know, and until a woman herself doesn't know her real worth, it's going to be very hard. I mean, we're just going to be stuck in this for, for years to come. And sometimes I wonder if it isn't also to do with the fact that unpaid labor, the labor that happens in the home from the cooking, the cleaning, the organizing children, the looking after elderly parents, the fact that that hasn't been quantified at a cost point of view, that there isn't a value attributed to it, that it almost further undervalues women. Whereas if you go out into the work environment, you receive a salary, and that piece of work equates to a financial value. Yes, um, that is that is very um, degrading for a mother, for a woman that has to sit at home. Sometimes it's not her choice, but she has no option. And I don't know, you know, you know, we have to. We can't. Re- private society cannot do it. And if government has the ducks in a row and has all you know, consider that, you know, women not working but have children should also receive some kind of grant. But it shouldn't be subject to abuse as well. You know, it's a difficult issue. True. If if it was easy, it would be solved and we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I, I can't take the matter any further. It's just, um, it's just, even if you're not going to have the state interfering, it's the family uh, the nuclear family or the or the or the extended family that need to appreciate the value of a woman, you know. Absolutely. Turning towards more of a personal perspective, uh, when I look at your qualifications on your CV, you had your BA in 1990 from the University of the Witwatersrand, going on to a period of further study, and in 2019 you did a negotiation and leadership course at Harvard Law School it really demonstrates this habit of of lifelong learning. Please, can you tell us about the role of education in your life and the impact that it's had on your career? Um, I think, yes. So I believe that, you know, uh, one has to educate oneself all the time. Even if I qualified years ago, in order to stay on top of the game, and make sure that you stay, you because we, you know you work in a very competitive environment. There are so many of you that you know it's about picking and choosing. So if you want to be the best or you want to work at the best, you need to educate yourself. So for me, education was very important, and I it was very hard because you must understand that even when I was at the bar, when I was still. Well, the day that I was writing my last paper for my exam, my LLB, I went into labor and I couldn't write my last paper. But I persevered and I was resilient and I breastfed while studying and I did all of that. So you can never give up. I think you should just, you should be, you should open yourself up to the fact that 
you're starting at the bottom of the ladder and you're going to grow and you're going to have a lot of adversities in your life, a lot of obstacles, but you, you bypass them in many ways because at the end of the day, you have one vision and you need to have a vision. You need to have a vision where you want to be. Sometimes you don't really know where you want to be. Uh, you get taken by surprise in terms of where you get employed or what kind of work you do. But whenever a door opens, you know, grab the opportunity and work at it and, you know, take it and learn. I think that, that if you have these three qualities, humility, mm-hmm. Um, the willingness to learn and um, and and respect um, you will go very far in life because you, you even sitting as a judge you learn all the time you get different matters you are never and you need to listen so it's never about you know everything you know so I think if you have those three characteristics the willingness to learn always being humble knowing that you don't know everything and working, in the environment, making, you know, in, and being, being amicable to, to the, you know, in an, if you're working in a big environment or in a business environment, working as a group instead of working for yourself and not being selfish and sharing, you will really grow because you reap what you sow, right? So, um, and in that way, I've helped a lot of female juniors, black female juniors, uh, black male juniors, because they had similar problems. They would come, start off at the bar, they would have family and mouths to feed, but they had no work. So I would bring them in, let them do deviling, and I'll pay them from my own pocket because clients don't always want to brief a second advocate. So in that way, I've helped a lot. I've also exposed them to the, the specialized fields that I was in, uh, that I was operating in. So if there were earrings or if there was research to be done and I would let them sit in, in them and let them learn. So that's what I did. So I know even now I would really love to study, but I I'm, don't know whether I have enough time right now. While listening to your journey, going into labor whilst you're in the middle of doing your exams and then still persevering, that, that shows dedication, perseverance, and juggling those realities of motherhood. Today, we're talking to Judge Hashila Kuvaji from the Gauteng Division of the High Court. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. I want to ask you a question about reflection, because obviously we all work out, walk our journeys, we've got our paths um, that are put in place, but sometimes if we could do things in a different way, Maybe we would if we had the opportunity of going back in time. So if we could wind the clock back, would there be anything that you would have done differently? Um, yeah, I would uh, perhaps. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have done anything differently in the path that I followed. But one thing that I would have, what I would like to, to really share is that because women feel they you're competing well in the in the field that I am you're competing with your male counterpart and you never think that you are good enough and you don't have the self-worth so what do you do you're always triple checking and double checking and making sure that you on top of the game when in reality you are on top of the game so what I would have done differently is not to question my confidence but to rather be confident 
and know that I've done whatever I had to do, what, whatever research had to be done or in presenting my matters and walking there and not think about, oh, my God, I am against this big senior white male advocate who knows the law because I, it's a matter of research. So I think that learning, researching, doing your work and then going in with confidence. And I did not do that all the time, especially in my early years. I would always question. Even now, I tend to go into, um, into moments where I question my judgments and say, well, do I know enough? Have I said enough? Did I put enough information in? Does the reader understand this? Is this a bad judgment? You know, And I think that you have to stop. Being able to trust your ability and run with it as opposed to having these self-doubts. Yeah, yeah. The next question that I want to ask you now is about your personal journey and factors for success. So many of our guests on the show have reached tremendous achievements in their respective fields. And they often speak about various factors. Some include discipline, uh, others include focus, faith, values, a particular person in their life. Can you share with us what have been some of the factors that have contributed to your success? Um, one of the factors that contributed mainly, largely to my success was at the age of five, I was, due to the apartheid years, and that was in the early 70s, I, we had to leave home. We had to leave home to go to schools and stay with relatives who lived in the areas where we could go to those schools. Um, I had to travel 600 kilometers away from my parents and I would only see them twice a year. That, that separation made me um, grow and understand that I, was, I felt very alone. And um, it was almost like living in a hostel for 12 years because you didn't really have mom, I need this, dad, I need this. Uh, so it was very hard, but it made me grow strong and it made me become independent. I think that if I did not have that experience and uh, taken out of my comfort zone, I wouldn't be as determined and as um, independent and ensuring that I take care of myself on all levels. 100%. Uh, that is economically, financially, uh, emotionally, and, um, and in every other way. I can imagine it must have been a challenging environment, especially being so young, because you grow up in a, an environment which is comfortable, you've got family values, you've got love, you've got support. But then when you are removed from that uh, environment and put into a completely different set of circumstances with strangers, it is very challenging. Yes, it, it was. And, but I think that also the fact that I had to leave home, it, I, wasn't, I was living with relatives, but in that environment, we were taught uh, discipline, we were taught uh, you know, uh, time management, we were taught uh, focus, we were taught our faith you know, uh, in our religion. So all of those aspects came in. So you know, living a, a life where you would just get up one morning and decide, I don't feel like doing this wasn't on the cards. You had a routine. And I think the routine and the discipline, how to dress, how to talk to people, how as a woman or a girl, you 
you know, you approach people. You don't just sit around where there's a lot of guys around. You know, the old school, uh, how we were taught and brought up, um, your elders, how to respect and talk to them. Um, and, and also manage time. You'll be writing a mature, matric exam, but if there's prayer time, you need to go and put away two hours of the day for that. So um, that also influenced me to, to have some kind of routine or plan my day every day. I cannot pass a day if I didn't plan. In the morning, I need to set out what I'm going to do. If I, even if it's leisure, I need to say, okay, well, today I'm going to relax, but I want to do this while I'm relaxing. So good habits die hard. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about some of your motivations for wanting to go into the legal system and points of influence that directed you to this space? Well, I think when I applied to study law, I wasn't fastidious on knowing that I want to become a lawyer. I didn't have an uncle in a legal fraternity or a brother or anyone. But I think for me, justice and fairness was a very strong character that I felt. You know, if I felt somebody is being unfair to someone, even just by not sharing, you know, sweets or, you know, friends not being fair to another. That used to affect me. And I see that all today, especially when you have litigants coming to court, they get bullied by counsel and big institutions like a bank. And you get this man on the street that said, I have paid, I only owe this much. And I've told them that I'm going to pay this by the end of the month. You know, you kind of identify with the unfairness but you also appreciate that there's law and there's processes in place. So for me, um, that is one thing that influenced me. But as I went into the legal field in the early years, I wasn't, I mean, you know, everyone had to have a career those days. So you, you have done that, but I started enjoying being an advocate thoroughly because it gave me that balance of being a mother, working a flexible times, looking at interesting things. And I think a very inherent character of mine is I love research. So I love advocacy in that way. And as I honed into it and, and you know, got into the field, I started and started specializing because when I left, I was specializing in the financial industry services sector. And I, I was also working on the international level, drafting papers for other government bodies. Um, so for me, uh, it was about, yes, I enjoyed my work. You know, I think one thing that you need to understand is that if you're going to study something, if you're not going to enjoy it, you're never going to have satisfaction. Mm. I enjoyed my work. I, for me, it was like, it, you know, it was, I was very driven. So you, you can only become driven if you enjoy what you're doing. True. It's almost perpetuating. So it feeds on itself. As we're in Women's Month, please, can you tell us, which women have been some of the role models or influences in your life? Well, I think that um, firstly, my mother, uh, because, and one thing that about her was her resilience. A woman that had to part with her children, but always had a smiling face, that never uh, complained about the fact that she couldn't be with her children, and she was very fair, she was very assertive. Um, so in that way, I think that just on a character level, it was my mom. I didn't spend many years with her or many uh, a long time with her. But uh, uh, if ever I would want to have a character trait would be someone like my mother. She was a peaceful soul. She was never um, unfair. She was, you know, not um, 
an evil person. She was just, everyone loved her, you know? So I think your character of humility, respect, give love, accept, those kind of things is something that I would, that I, I looked up to in, in, in so far as my mom, mother's concerned. In so far as my um, professional growth is concerned, um, I always followed Justice Mohoro, that is Yvonne Mohoro. She was of the first woman appointed on the to the constitutional bench, one of the first women, and our constitutional court just started in early 1996, and she was one of the first women that was approached by the president to sit as a constitutional court judge. Um, over the years, I have got to know her on a professional level because we worked on the Financial Sector Conduct Authority. She was the chair of that uh, financial sector um, appeal board. And uh, just the fact that she was so young when she went to the constitutional court and that she achieved so much, uh, not just as a constitutional court judge. She stopped working as a constitutional court judge, but she was involved in so many international um, forums, either as a chair or as a member, and she kept on contributing, and she still contributes. And for me, that is a role model. I wouldn't want to stop working when mm -hmm. I retire. I would like to contribute something to society. Continuing with that thought of contributions to society, because we've kind of spoken about the pre-life, the current life, moving towards the future, what would you like your legacy to be? Well, in that regard, I'd like to be seen eventually as someone who has developed the law, and I would like to be seen as a, a judge who is, you know, well-rounded, understood the law, who applied mind properly and also and further could relate to the challenges, you know, in, in disputes, you know, especially at the ground level. Um, I would also like to be seen as somebody that uh, people would look up to so that you can help them and guide them and in in direct them in their careers or in their lives or give advice. So, um yeah, it doesn't just have to be on the judiciary front. It doesn't also just have to be in the legal fraternity, but, uh, and especially women and young children, and especially um, society that cannot afford, you know, or members of society cannot afford um, uh, fees for education. I'd really like to get involved in that. So, and be remembered as someone who's helped society from the educational level. One of my key takeouts of today's conversation will really be about your view of serving the public. As we close out today's conversation and almost end Women's Month, please will you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to women and girls in the continent that are listening to the show? Uh, yeah, um, can just give me a moment. I'd like to, I like to really tell young budding of you know students or even young women that firstly know that you are worthy and that you never need to question yourself. That's the most important thing because if you know that if you know your self worth, then you will be able to um, be confident. You will be able to approach your work on a on a more uh, a confident basis and you will be able to achieve much more in your career and in your personal life as well 
and for your family because you'll be able to take that confidence to your children. And second thing is that you must always be ready to learn because you never stop learning. So whether you have a family, there's no excuse. I, I believe that people that say they don't have time uh, and they sit at home, and, and those are not the ones that don't have the financial means. Those are the ones with the financial means. They are just lazy because you can make a life. Even if you start your own business, you can do something. The third thing is that pride is and ego are the worst characters, characteristics to have. If you want to excel, yes, they say women, uh, if you want to excel, you need to have, make sure that you, 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 are, you have humility, but you have respect for yourself and that just don't put yourself on the back footing. And when there are opportunities, grab those opportunities and go for them and learn and, you know, access those opportunities so that you can grow. And, yeah, um, that's all I can say now. <laughs> well, thank you very much for those points. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you so much. I really um, do feel honoured and I hope that I added some value but uh, thank you once again. No, we appreciate your perspective and your commitment to public service. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and we have been talking to Judge Hashela Kuverji from the Gauteng Division of the High Court in Pretoria.